And I had forgotten what uh, chapter we ended at. I think I had taught 12 already, but I thought it's probably good to review it. And no one told me, reminded me that we were on 13. So I prepared for 12. So, yeah, so you can have a nice nap because you know it all, right? Yeah? So, and, uh, yeah, then we'll go on to 13, yeah. This, I, I don't keep track of, it's, it was a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was last December, what? December, November, anyway. Yeah, I figured if I didn't remember, you wouldn't remember either, but one person did. So thank you very much. But Okay, good. So we're, uh, we'll review Chapter 12, The Mind and Its Potential, because this is actually the chapter that heads into the whole discussion of Buddha nature. You know, it's uh, kind of, we're going into a whole new, topic here in the book. The last topic we covered was was nirvana. Yeah. Which yeah, relates to Buddha nature. But um here we're talking more about the mind. Okay, so um let's start with the visualization of the lineage masters surrounding the Buddha. and ourselves surrounded by all the sentient beings. And all the sentient beings, even though they're not vocalizing it, but inside they're all screaming, I want happiness, I don't want pain. And then they scream, but I can't get the happiness I want, and the pain comes without my even looking for it. And the Buddha responds to that by saying, you need to learn what are the causes of happiness and what are the causes of pain. So you can practice one and abandon the other. And taking refuge in the three jewels is the first step to doing that, deciding that the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are the refuges that we're going to follow. And we're following them not out of blind faith, but because we know something already about what they teach. It's made sense to us. We've practiced it somewhat, and it's helped us. So then we say to all the sentient beings, come take refuge with us in the Three Jewels. And then... They will teach you how to avoid the causes of suffering and how to create the causes of pain. Oh, got a 
great the causes of happiness. So the sense authentic beings want happiness and not suffering. And they don't know the causes of either of them. Then it's up to the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas to teach and instruct them But the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can't do it alone. They need our help in the sense that we're the ones who have close contact with certain beings right now and can influence them in a positive direction. So let's generate that motivation to be a service and benefit to sentient beings and to then lead them to the real refuge, which is not us limited beings, but to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And seeing that no matter how confused they are right now, sentient beings and us too all have the potential to become fully awakened. And so let's strengthen that awareness of our potential and make it an aspiration that we want to actually do that for the benefit of living beings and make that our motivation. So looking, uh, there's so many different viewpoints or lenses through which we can look at life and understand the different things we see and experience. And one of those lenses or perspectives 
is thinking everybody wants happiness, nobody wants suffering. Uh, but, you know, people and animals and insects, all the other living beings, don't know what the actual causes of happiness are and the causes of suffering. And so then you just look at what happened today, you know, and the whole dynamic of every single sentient being is motivated by the wish for happiness and to avoid pain. That's the whole thing that this whole world is geared towards trying to get. Yeah, isn't it that for each one of us? Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, um, of like all the craziness that is going on in the world and what makes the front page and what doesn't. And it's all, all of it motivated by the wish for happiness and avoid pain. So one thing that's been on the, the big headlines recently um, was there was a group of people who wanted to see the Titanic, you know, since somebody has located the ruins of the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean, and then there's sometimes people who want to go see it. And so they have a, a, a vessel called the submersible, and there five people were in it, and uh, it goes under the water, you know, to to the bottom of the ocean. There is a one window in it that what was it about two feet in diameter, or, you know, across. So very small, five people. There's no seats in the submersible because the idea isn't that you don't you don't stay in it and take a vacation. You go see the Titanic and then you come up. Um, but it got lost. The submersible got lost contact with people online. So there's this uh, no, online on on Earth, you know, on the land, I should say. So. Everybody's freaked out. So they send out boats and the Coast Guard, and then they sent planes. And for days and days, they're looking for this submersible because it got lost last Sunday. Yeah. So everybody's like, what's happening with these five people? Because it's in a pressurized vessel. They're at 13,000 feet under the ocean where the the pressure is just enormous. So they're looking and looking and they can't find. And the whole world is focused on these five people. You know, forget everybody else, people who don't have enough food, who don't have education, who are dying of whatever, their, you know, cancer or kidney disease or what. Everybody is focused, you know, on these. Oh, except a few people who are 
really revving up Congress because they want to impeach um, Biden, you know. Yeah, so they have a different goal. But everybody's revved up about these kinds of things. And uh, and then yesterday they found evidence that the the submersible vessel had imploded. Yeah, and so they found remnants uh, close to the Titanic. So now there's two ships at the bottom of the ocean that now I'm, I suppose other people will want to go see both of them, except the one that, that just imploded. Um, they, they said that, you know, they don't expect to find any remains of the people because the force of the implosion is so strong that it would just, you know, like, they said it would, they would just die like that. They wouldn't even know what was going on. And it wouldn't even be painful because it would happen so quickly. And I was thinking, you know, this whole thing, you know, how many people want to go see the ruins of the Titanic? Any of you? Yeah? You want to do it? Okay. But what? Not that submersible. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that submersible doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But I thought, you know, I mean, these people, it was such a strong wish to go see the rooms of the Titanic. And two of the five people were a father and son. The father was a very wealthy Pakistani businessman. And the son was 19 years old, and he didn't want to go. And he said to his mom, you know, I don't want to go. This thing is really scary for me. But, you know, Dad wants me to go, and it's important to him, so okay, I'll go. Yeah, And then, yeah, then I don't know how much money it cost. $250,000 a piece. $250,000 a person what, to, to ride in the submersible, yet yeah, to, to go out there. But for find, trying to find them, this rescue thing, yeah, who knows how much that cost and where the money from that is coming from. And it's wonderful that, you know, so many people actually risk their lives trying to find these people. You know, I mean, it's incredible, sentient beings helping other sentient beings. But also, it, it makes you wonder, you know, was seeing the ruins of the Titanic something that important? Yeah, that you wound up dying for it and putting other people's lives in danger. But, I mean, this is how strong the wish for happiness is. What And, you know, whatever it is that we find happiness in, it's like we want that and nothing else, you know, at that moment. And the force of the clinging and the craving is so powerful 
Yeah, so you can see that's that's what makes samsara keep going round and around and around. So uh, I also had an interesting discussion with one of the achans uh, about bodhicitta, and uh, and it was interesting because. The discussion made me realize uh, that I've changed. <laughs> yeah, in in a way that you know, I I didn't notice. I thought it was just kind of automatic, you know. But he said to me, he asked, he, uh, "How do you uh, broaden your mind to include?" all sentient beings in your motivation. Yeah. And so I I said, well, you know, from the very get-go, my teacher is, all my teachers have been teaching about bodhicitta and, you know, that aspiration for awakening in order to benefit sentient beings most effectively. And... And I said, you know, they told me that in the, at the beginning. They emphasized that. And so I just keep thinking about it. And it made me realize that all the time, I mean, of course, we have a habit here of we, all, we generate bodhicitta many times a day in, as a community, you know, with the monastic mind motivation and our... What our um, what we say before we we offer service and before cooking and and before all of our teachings and everything. So we're re- reminding ourselves of it a lot. But uh, so what I realized that I changed in is that um, through this process, I automatically think of all living beings. Yeah. And, I mean, because that's the, you can't generate bodhicitta without doing that. Yeah, even if your bodhicitta is contrived and it's like super artificial, but still, you know, when you think, your mind automatically goes to all sentient beings. And, And that wasn't what his mind automatically did. That's why he asked me, how do you change your perspective? to include everybody. So that made me, you know, realize, okay, you know, you you do this enough, and then something that was not automatic for you years ago now becomes automatic whenever you, you know, just your, your whole perspective on life is a perspective of all sentient beings. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, usually, and I'm not saying we never have it now, I certainly do, our, our perspective on life is how can I get what I want? Yeah. So I told him, you know, you get in, in touch with your own wish for happiness and to be free of pain. And then you realize that's what's going on inside everybody else. You know, it's the motivation of everything in this world. Yeah. And 
you know, and that's just the way you look at life. Yeah, that's your perspective. Um, so, I mean, there's tons of episodes if I want what I want when I want it. But, you know, there's still some awareness of, of the situation of other living beings and some care about uh, their situation. Yeah. So it's the force, how we talk about the force of planting seeds and you keep planting the seeds, you be, keep becoming familiar with the, the same perspective, and then it just kind of becomes automatic, how you look at life. You know, I don't automatically want everybody to be happy. I mean, I'm certainly number one. But, you know, the, the perspective is, I'm surrounded by other sentient beings. This per- perspective isn't, I am a single, you know, individual, kick myself up by my own bootstraps and I don't need anybody. You know, th- that's not the perspective anymore. So that, that was kind of uh, interesting to notice. Hmm? Anyway, yeah. So, you know, so you, so your mind does go, oh, there's four people in this. I don't know how long the submersible was. It's tiny. It's not very big. And no seats. They had enough oxygen to last, what was it? I don't know, maybe three or four days, 70, 78 hours. That's, uh, that's a, you know, a few days. So, um you know, you wish them well, but then you also think, well, what about everybody else? Yeah. So that's why we're um, studying this book, isn't it? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. as we learn, uh, this chapter is called The Mind and Its Potential. As we learn about our own mind, we're learning about everybody's mind. Yeah. And seeing that everybody has the potential, and everybody is also, well, except the Aryas, everybody is really obscured, you know, and we have to work hard to clear away the obscurations. Okay. So, His Holiness says, once we have recognized the unsatisfactory nature of samsara and identified its causes, the question arises, Is liberation possible? If so, how do we attain it? To answer these, we must understand our mind, which is the basis of samsara and nirvana. So our mind is the basis of samsara and nirvana. Okay. And asking that question, is liberation possible? is essential, because if it's not possible, then why waste our time, you know, learning all these things and trying to understand emptiness and generating bodhicitta, you know, if we, you know, if we're doomed uh, or hardwired uh, to be the way we are now. And this, okay, so the, 
<laughs> this last week. I'm telling you what, what I've been thinking this last week. Um, in the, I did an interview with a, uh, the Korean Buddhist TV station. So one of the questions they asked, you know, they were commenting about how there's much more dialogue between science and Buddhism now and how His Holiness the Dalai Lama has kind of been at the forefront of that. And he's been very interested. And so they said to me, they asked me, uh, do you think we should have a fusion of Buddhism and science? Okay. And I said, no. <laughs> okay. Um, because they're two different disciplines. And, and they do research on two different things. Yeah. So science researches the material world and it uses scientific uh, instruments that can measure speed and color and sound waves and light waves and all these things that uh, can be detected by our five physical senses. So science is really interested in all that. And it researches that, it draws conclusions about that. And, and you know, so many people uh, live their life with that scientific view. And we see it even when people come to learn Buddhism and they say, oh, well, I have to get it through my brain that I, to, through my mind, no, through my brain that, uh, you know, there's other living beings besides me. Really? You have to get it through your brain? We always go like this. I have to change my brain. Yeah. And so we confuse the mind with the brain, and we confuse the person with the brain. I, I said in the interview, if, you know, there's somebody you really love uh, very much, if you could take out their their brain and put it on the table, would you look at it and say, oh, I love you so much? Yeah, Any would anybody do that? This gray blob with capillaries and stuff like that, is that what you're in love with? Yeah, when you care about somebody? You know? Your amygdala, oh, it's so gorgeous. And your front lobal, front, whatever it's called, occidental lobe, I don't know, I forgot. I learned all of this one time, but I forgot it. You know, it's like, is that what you're in love with? Yeah. So, yeah, so it's just interesting because this is how many, many people speak. It's kind of automatically. Yes, it's my, uh, my, my, you know, I'm my, my, I'm my brain. Uh -huh. um, but that's certainly not the Buddhist perspective. And we do research too, um, but not so much using the scientific uh, instruments. 
but using the instrument of the, the mind, the consciousness itself, to learn about itself. Yeah. And so we value what science can offer, but it is a different discipline. And I don't think we should uh, use science to validate Buddhism. Some people have also suggested that, that we'll, we'll know that, uh, you know, when they uh, talk about like, attaining, you know, okay, you attain liberation, then something will happen to your brain, and you can measure that. You can measure the, somebody's brain and know if they're liberated. And you can measure their brain and tell if they've realized emptiness or you know, and if it's an inferential realization of emptiness or a direct one, you know? Yeah, and they think, oh, yeah, if if science can figure that out, then we would know who has realizations and who doesn't. And nobody could go lying about having realizations when they don't have them, because we could just send them to the lab and, you know, and and get the test. (laughs) Yeah, um, but I don't think we need to depend on science to validate what meditators have discovered. And uh, I don't think science needs meditators to validate what they've learned either. Yeah. And I, I also said to these people who asked the question in the interview, I said also, you know, the scientists are the first ones who would admit that they don't know everything, you know, and that they do an experiment and it never comes out that a hundred percent of whatever it is, you know, has that certain result. Yeah, it's always a certain percentage. It's never a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I got her to agree. <laughs> but uh, but I was all prepared if she said no to say, well, is light a uh, a wave or a particle? <laughs> I don't understand the question, but I know that's that's how you get the goat of a scientist. <laughs> but. I, I was saying that, uh, you know, scientists change uh, their conclusions all the time. And I was remembering, you know, some of you may remember this too. Do you remember when margarine first came into existence? And don't eat butter. Butter has too much fat. You know, it's not good for you. Everybody should be eating margarine. And then a few years go by, and then it's, oh, butter is much better for you than margarine. Margarine has all these other fats that aren't good. So don't eat margarine, eat butter. And then there was the time when we were told, eat a lot of eggs. You know, they're good for you. And then a few years later, don't eat so many eggs because they have all sorts of other stuff in in them. Uh, and so 
Um, yeah, you remember that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the scientists mean well, and they're discovering things, but they, they, yeah, they mean well. Mm -hmm. I think it might be the egg lobby. Uh, there's a big problem with the egg lobby? Oh. Why does it have to do with the hens? <laughs> you know those hens, they're... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they don't want just to be free-range. They want a spa, a hen spa. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know... We, we scientists keep on learning, and we we learn from what they learn. Um, but one one discipline doesn't need to validate the other one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, as Holiness has has been to many many uh, mind and life conferences, you know, and this whole thing of the mind and the brain comes up a lot. And I know whenever I've spoken to, to scientists or psychologists about it, the answer is the mind is an emergent property of the brain. But then I say, what's an emergent property? Yeah. So I haven't gotten a clear answer of what an emergent property is. Yeah. It's the example was how sentient beings started out as like amoebas in the ocean and then somehow uh, once they got nervous systems and brains, then the mind, uh, you know, just came along. Uh, but His Holiness said uh, one, one time, I don't think he said this in the uh, 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 Mind Life meeting itself, but he said, they will never convince me that the mind is the brain. Yeah. So, yeah. I once said to a, a scientist during, in the early, many years ago, I was able to go to the Mind Life conferences. I, I went because uh, my friend was videoing the, the whole conference, and so he got me in um, so I could change the tapes. Um, because otherwise, uh, you know, there were many monks who came, but who wanted a nun to come? Yeah, but he got me in, so I changed the tapes. And that's... All I knew how to do with, uh, as you know, with technology things. <laughs> yeah? So I, I googled emergence and what it says about what it is within uh -huh. philosophy. It says emergence occurs when a complex entity has properties or behaviors that its parts do not have on their own and emerge when they interact in a wider whole. The phenomenon of life as studied in biology is an emergent property of chemistry. So this reminds me of 
in the seven point analysis when is the thing the sum of its parts? Yeah. And there's this idea that when parts come together, something new emerges from it. Right. Yeah. But I think Buddhism refutes that. Yeah. Well, something does come, but, you know, and it is more than the sum of the parts, but it doesn't mean it's consciousness. Otherwise, the carpet, you know, you put all the particles that make up the carpet together and you don't get conscious. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the carpet may be in just an emergent property of all the little specks of stuff. I don't know. Okay. So the mind's potential. As sentient beings, uh, in other words, beings with minds that are still obscured, we have great potential, our greatest potential being to become fully awakened Buddhists, omniscient beings who have the wisdom, compassion, powerful power, and skillful means to be of the greatest benefit to all. Yeah. Right now, many people th think that science has the ability to be of the greatest benefit to all. But science doesn't become beneficial unless the people doing the science and the people knowing about the results that they discover have good ethical conduct. Yeah, science uh, got us the atom bomb. Yeah. So just alone, we can't say uh, that it's beneficial. It, ben it depends on the motivation of the people who discover things and the motivation of the people who then make use of those discoveries. And uh, as human beings, we haven't done so well with that. You know, the bomb was... It's one of the biggest examples. And now it's um, artificial intelligence. Yeah. And like, yeah, you don't have to write term papers anymore. You just do something and click, 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 and uh, pull your term paper out of the computer. Yeah. And they have artificial intelligence who will talk to you if you're depressed or if you're suicidal. You know, so, yeah, so this joke about falling in love with a computer, uh, it maybe isn't a joke. Yeah. Yeah, you can program the computer to become everything that, you know, you ever wanted in a spouse, except for a few things. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of emotional responses, the computer can get it right, apparently, if you do, if you program it correctly. Yeah. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Anybody else feel it's weird? Yeah. Siri, I, I don't, I feel unhappy today. Oh, you do. Poor you. What do you need? You need some chocolate? I'll order 
some chocolate and have it sent to you right away. No, Siri, I don't need chocolate. I need a friend. Oh, I'll be your friend. Yeah. Yeah. Then you go to school and the teacher says, Who's your best friend? Siri. Yeah. I mean, there's a few others besides Siri, aren't there? What's the one on my computer? What? Cortana, yeah. Yeah, I don't talk to her. Yeah. Maybe Cortana gets jealous of Siri because Siri's my best friend and I don't talk to Cortana. Yeah, so maybe Cortana's going to do something to, you know, ruin Siri's reputation, get even with her. Yeah, then all the computers will fight. Yeah, that's that would be better actually. The computers can kill each other and leave the rest of us alone. Yeah. Okay. A natural quality of the mind is its ability to cognize objects. This capacity to be aware of and to know objects is already pre- present. It does not have to be newly cultivated. That's the nature of the mind. When we say the mind is clarity and cognizance, you know, it's that definition of mind, that which is clarity and cognizance. So that's the mind's very nature. Nevertheless, various obstructions can inhibit the mind from cognizing objects. When these obstructions are eliminated, the mind will have no difficulty knowing all phenomena. I mean, think about that. That you have the, the natural potential to know everything. And the only, thing, only reason why you don't is because the mind is obstructive. But the obstructions can be eliminated. And when they've been eliminated, then just by the nature of the mind, it receives everything. That's kind of amazing to think about. Yeah, like me? My mind can do that? I can think about something else besides Mickey Mouse? One type of obstruction is physical matter. A wall obstructs us from seeing what is beyond it. When the wall is removed, our visual consciousness can see what is there. Yeah, that makes sense. We can see see the wall. It obstructs. I can't see. I can't see the kitchen through the wall. Yeah. A second obstruction is distance and size. The object is too far away or too small for our cognitive faculties to come in contact with it. Okay, so, uh, you know, the, the butterflies that are around Elmer's Road. Yeah. Elmer's Road? Elmer's Loop. Yeah. So we know there's butterflies around Elmer's Loop. 
but it's too far away for us to see them, and they're too small for us to see them. Yeah, but if we we go to Elmer's Loop, yeah, then we'll see them. Yeah. So, to some extent, telescopes and microscopes have helped alleviate this difficulty of seeing things that are too far away or too small. In these cases, we can know the object not because the mind has become clearer and better able to apprehend the object, but because the object is brought within the range of our operable cognitive faculties. Okay. So a third difficulty, another obscuration, concerns the cognitive faculties that are the basis of consciousness. The visual consciousness is able to perceive only forms. It's only only able to see colors and shapes. Okay? Um, The visual consciousness can't perceive sounds or smells or tactile objects. Yeah? Or tastes. It can only... see visual things, color and shape, that are within its range. Okay? Um, Because, and why can't the the eye consciousness see other things? Because it's dependent on the the eye faculty, okay, which is this subtle material, probably the retina, the eye, the cones and rods and the retina, you know. And uh, if the if a healthy eye faculty is absent, the visual consciousness cannot perceive visual forms. Okay? So you have to have the faculty yeah, that is healthy that can connect the object to the specific consciousness that has the ability to see it. Yeah, and. Uh, as we know by looking at our cats, yeah, they see things that we don't see. Yeah, they have a different eye faculties, and through their kind of eyes, they can see things that we can't see. It's quite amazing. You know, I, I can look at, at my tree sometimes, and she is looking very intently at something on the other side of the room. You know, and it's not just like she's glancing around. It's like, what is this? She's staring at it. Yeah, but we can't see it because our eye faculty doesn't have that power. Dogs can hear sounds that we can't hear. Yeah, so it is. I find it so interesting that as human beings, we we think that our science. Our senses are kind of like they're almost omniscient, and we only know things, really know things, if we can see them with our five physical senses. You know, in other words, I mean, lots of people say, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, if I can't see it, then I don't believe it exists. Many people say that. But... There's so many things that, you know, with different kinds of fat, uh, sense faculties, other beings can see, but we can't see. 
And we, we keep forgetting this. Yeah, how we keep forgetting how limited even our own senses are. Yeah. Do you find that? Yeah. The type of brain a being has also influences what can be perceived. A mental faculty dependent on an animal brain and one dependent on a human brain have different ranges of objects that they can know. Yeah. As we all know, we try and teach our kitties about the precepts, especially about not killing. Yeah. Uh, they can't understand it. They, they hear the sounds. We talk to them. I talk to, all, I mean, I take a walk. I talk to all the animals, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them. You know, they get little Dharma discourses. Yeah. Wishing them good rebirths and, and, you know, so they can become monastics in their future lives and so on. And, uh, and they can hear the sound. Huh? And I'm sure that sound gets conveyed to, to the brain. But the mental faculty can't understand what those sounds mean. Yeah, no matter how much we talk and try and explain to them. Okay. So we have different ranges, our brains even have different ranges of objects that we can know. Due to the complexity of the brains of these two beings, the mental faculties and consciousnesses depending on them differ in what they can perceive and understand. I remember being in school and they, uh, the teacher showed us this one uh, video because science, scientists had figured out how eye, uh, flies' eyes see things because they have lots of different lenses going in different directions and, and so on. And so they made a model like of us looking at the thermos and what we see and how a, a, a um, you know, some, a fly would see the same thermos because its eye faculty was different, a different shape, and it saw this from different angles and so on. And so it saw a completely different object, and it would relate to this object very different than, than we do, you know. I mean, a fly certainly can't reach out and, and pick it up, but, you know, it knows, a fly can know a lot more about certain aspects of this thermos than we can. Yeah. And yet we, we're so proud of, of uh, our human knowledge. Furthermore, a mind proliferating with wrong views and overwhelmed with disturbing emotions is too distracted and preoccupied to turn its attention to other objects. The range of what such an afflicted uh, mental, what the range of what such afflictive mental states can know, 
becomes very limited. A calm mind can be more astute. So think of that when you're really upset about something. Yeah. We think we know everything about the situation, you know. You did that, you did that, you did that, and it's not fair, no, 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 I'm being persecuted. Yeah, this world isn't fair. I should have better opportunities. Um, okay. And we think that's true. But our mind is so limited. <laughs> yeah. And even when we're not upset, you know, are just our normal mind. How, how often do we think about other sentient beings? Only when they're in our way or when we want something from them. Or they do something nice for us. Yeah. How much attention, I mean, how much do we, energy and time do we spend thinking about others? It's only when they're in relationship to us that we think about them. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, the afflictive mind, yeah. the ignorant mind grasping at an eye, from that comes a tap. You know, if you grasp eye, then you grasp other, then comes attachment to the eye. Yeah, and we walk around like this all the time. Yeah. I have correct perception of everything. <laughs> a further uh, difficulty in knowing objects is that some objects are so subtle, profound, or vast that the ordinary mind is unable to cognize them. To know these objects, single-pointed concentration and or wisdom that is freed from wrong conceptions is needed. So subtle impermanence, yeah, things are changing from one moment to the next moment. They don't remain the same. Can we see that, that subtle impermanence? No, we only see gross impermanence. The sun rises, the sun sets. Okay, but how is it changing you know, split second by split second, and even smaller by split seconds, the split, 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 infinite split seconds, you know, how is something changing? We have no idea. It's too subtle for us. Yeah? Even certain aspects of our body, when we talk about the channels and winds and drops, you know, in our body, oh, we can't see them. We have no idea what's going on. Yeah, too subtle. Okay, so for that's uh, one reason why uh, deep states of meditation are necessary. Yeah, so that you can know those things and use that knowledge to benefit sentient beings, but. The real purpose of concentration is not just to have the supernormal po uh, powers like that, but to be able to realize emptiness directly and then use that mind to 
purify the mind of of all obscurations. So another uh, type of obstruction is uh, subtle defilements on the mind that produce false appearances. These prevent us from attaining Buddhahood, the state of omniscient mind. So these are what we call the cognitive obscurations. The previous paragraph was talking about the afflictive obscurations, how they obscure the mind. This one is the, the false appearances of true existence. When these subtle defilements are removed, the mind will naturally perceive all phenomena. Isn't that amazing? Uh-huh. The main obst- uh, obstructions to omniscience are the latencies of the afflictions, the subtle appearance of inherent existence that they produce, and the defilement preventing seeing the two truths simultaneously. After the wisdom realizing ultimate reality eliminates the afflictive obscurations, it must cleanse the cognitive obscurations from the mind. So that's the difference between our hardship and Buddhahood. Our hearts have eliminated the cognitive obscurations, but not the, uh, uh, sorry, they've eliminated the afflictive obscurations, but not the cognitive obscurations. Yeah, the bodhisattvas who attain Buddhahood at the time of Buddhahood have eliminated also the cognitive obscurations. When every last defilement is removed, the mind is totally purified and its excellent qualities are fully developed. This is the state of Buddhahood in which the capabilities of the mind has no, have no limits. The effectiveness of a Buddha's activities depend not on the abilities of that Buddha, but on the receptivity of sentient beings. So from the side of the Buddhas, yeah, they are, through their enlightening activities, always doing something trying to benefit us. Yeah, the the effectiveness of their efforts to benefit us, you know, why don't, you know, why aren't, why aren't we picking them up? Because of our own obscurations. It's like radio stations are constantly sending out the radio waves, but if our radio is turned off, uh, you know, you don't, you can't hear the radio. So it's the same thing. The Buddhas are always doing something to benefit us. And, you know, maybe once in a while we're kind of tuned in and we, we receive that benefit. So Bhagavan, or uh, endowed victor, is one epithet of the Buddha. The Buddha is endowed with all excellent qualities and is victorious in overcoming the four maras. So the four maras, the polluted aggregates, death, afflictions, and here he said, distraction to external objects. Sometimes for the fourth one, they say, um, the son of the gods, like some mischievous kind of god that gets in the way of people. 
but here it's distraction to external objects. And it's true when our mind is distracted uh, to external objects and captivated by external objects, yeah, then uh, it's limited in what it can perceive. Yeah. You're so interested in the arrangement of the, the atoms and the elements in this thermos, that that's what your mind is focused on. Okay. Since the mind has the natural capacity to be aware and to understand when all obstructions have been removed, it will be able to directly perceive all phenomena. A Buddha's omniscient mind is able to realize simultaneously both veiled or conventional and ultimate truths with a single consciousness. So high-level bodhisattvas can see the two truths, but with different consciousnesses. You know, Buddhas can see them in with one consciousness. Oh, it said that a mental faculty is dependent on the brain mm. here. And not not every mental faculty is dependent. Yes, so it's parts of the mental faculty that are dependent on the brain? The, the mental faculty actually means the uh, five physical, the, the five consciousnesses related to that perceive the five uh, sense objects. Those are, are the mental faculty. The faculty is what is able to connect those objects to, to, the, uh, to the mental consciousness. Okay, yeah. Huh? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, okay, right now you can think about uh, a tree outside, right? Is your visual consciousness seeing that tree? Is that how what makes you think about it? How are you connected to the tree right now? Yeah? Your visual consciousness at one time in the past saw the tree that information, that, that visual consciousness acted as the uh, mental faculty so that your mental consciousness now can think about the tree. You know, it perceives a conceptual appearance of the tree, and then you can think about it. But you're not seeing the real tree right now. Okay? Like that. Okay, next session. section says, is liberation possible? To review, disturbing emotions and wrong views are called afflictions because when they arise in the mind, they afflict us and disturb our mental peace. In addition, they motivate us to do actions that disturb and afflict the peace of others. Ain't that true? Now, fortunately, these afflictions can be removed, enabling us to attain liberation, a true state of peace that does not fluctuate according to external circumstances. Yeah. So whatever your external circumstance is, that doesn't need to throw you off. 
Yeah. We're, we're very much ex- it, uh, influenced by our external circumstances, aren't we? Yeah. If we don't like somebody, we just even hear their name. Uh, they could be in that submersible somewhere. But we just hear their name and we get upset. Yeah. Or somebody that you're fond of, you just hear their name. Completely, our mind, you know, is in a different mood. Yeah, so very distracted to to external things. Yeah. It's too. We walk in a in a place, and it's too hot, and our, our our mind immediately goes, "Oh, it's so uncomfortable in here. It's so hot. Yeah, I've got to turn down the heat." Uh, do you ever notice? I mean, we're so reactive to everything our in, in our environment. And, you know, in, I've done, you know, being a history major, I kind of uh, read a lot about different situations. And it always, uh, it really impressed me how when some people are in imprisoned in a horrible, horrible situations, they can keep a balanced state of mind. Yeah. Uh, because most people, when they even think about a prison environment, they get, yeah, I'm sure Donnie's really scared now, yeah, trying to put on a good face, of course, but terrified. Yeah. But some people, uh, I mean, you read stories of people during the Cultural Revolution in China, you know, during the, the genocide in Tibet, you know, who they managed to keep their minds calm in horrible situations. Yeah. What gives them the ability to do that? How can they not be so reactive to their environment. You know, for us, it's it's like, um, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like, wow. How, how, how did they pull that off? Yeah. Okay, so you can see the effect afflictions have. Yeah. They disturb our peace of mind and they take us away from focusing on, on useful things and creating uh, all sorts of emotional reactions uh, to situations that uh, do not exist. I mean, all the disinformation that uh, society is exposed to now and that we're exposed to. Now, so much disinformation, and people get so excited about it because they think it's true. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how January 6th happened, you know? You send out some information, people believe it, and then they act on it, and, you know, the rest of us experience the result, too. So it's uh, 
it's good that we can remove these afflictions so our mind, so they don't just take our mind away. Okay, so several factors make liberation possible. So the first one is the basic or true nature of the mind is pure. Yeah. When we're mad, when we're depressed, it certainly doesn't feel like the basic nature of our mind is pure. But it's good to remember at those times that it is pure. Yeah. And that we don't, we're not always going to feel how we feel at this particular moment. Yeah. So the basic nature of the mind is uh, clear like water. Dirt in a glass of water isn't the nature of the water and can be removed. No matter how murky the water may be, its essential quality of clarity is never lost. And you can find some pretty dirty water, but the basic nature of the water is clear, is pure. So this basic conventional nature, when we hear the word spavava, this is one meaning of spavava. This basic conventional nature of the mind is clear and cognizant. It is the basis upon which awakening can be attained. Yeah. So the basis upon which we can become Buddhas, we have already. It's there. And as such, it is the ultimate source of our confidence that awakening is possible, since we have the basic material. It's not physical material. Okay. So inanimate objects such as stones and trees cannot attain awakening because they lack the qualities of clarity and cognizance that only a mind possesses. Yeah, so I'm sorry, dear Thermos. I love you terribly, but you can't become a Buddha. And the Thermos says, but why not? You know, why not? It's not fair. Okay. So the second reason why liberation is possible, the afflictions are adventitious. In other words, they are not part of the nature of the mind. So that's what adventitious means. It's not part of the nature of something. So it can be removed from whatever that object is. So Dharmakirti says, the nature of the mind is clear light. The defilements are adventitious. Okay. So that is, Dharmakirti is also uh, Geshe-la's ordination name, Chodrak. Yeah. So that's a good It's a good name. Yeah, a lot to live up to. <laughs> Except I think you're a prosangika. <laughs> Yeah. Dharma Kirti, he wasn't a prosenika. Yeah. But he was a good guy anyway. Afflictions have not penetrated into the basic nature of the mind. The fact that afflictions are not always present in the mind 
indicates that every instance of the mind's clarity and cognizance is not associated with afflictions. Okay? So, because if every moment of the mind were associated with afflictions, they would always be there and they would always be manifest, but they're not. Sometimes our minds are peaceful and calm. Afflictions may arise and after a while pass away. If they were inherently part of the true nature of the mind, they would always be present and it would be impossible to eliminate them. But this is not the case, fortunately. So the purest form of the mind is the fundamental, innate, clear light mind. In ordinary beings, this subtle, clear light mind is neutral. It has never been and can never become non-virtuous. Okay. From this perspective... However, by engaging in special yogic practices, that subtle, clear like mind can be transformed into a virtuous state. From this perspective, too, we see that defilements are not inherent in the nature of the mind. If they were, then that mind could never be transformed to a virtuous state. Then the third reason, it is possible to cultivate powerful antidotes, realistic and beneficial mental states that eradicate the afflictions. Saying that defilements are adventitious means that when suitable conditions are present, the defilements can be removed from the basic nature of the mind. So it's just like in a glass of muddy water, if you have good conditions, you can remove the mud from the water and leave the, the clear water. It does not mean that at one time afflictions did not exist and later came into existence. Okay, so he's talking here about there's no beginning to samsara. There wasn't a time. Yeah, it's interesting. Theistic religions, there is a beginning. And there was some purity before that beginning, or there was something going on. I don't know what Adam and Eve were doing before that apple got in the way. Yeah? Does the Bible say what they were doing? No? Okay. Hmm? Hanging out. <laughs> Okay, so it does not mean that at one time the afflictions did not exist and later came into existence after you ate an apple. Rather, afflictions are beginningless and have continuously obscured our minds until now. They can be seized completely when the proper antidote is applied. In praise to the sphere of reality, Nagarjuna compares the mind to asbestos, asbestos, am I saying it right? Cloth. Yeah, that is filled with dirt. When put into the fire, the dirt will burn, but not the cloth. So similarly, the fire of wisdom, the wisdom realizing emptiness, 
can destroy the defilements, but the clear light mind will remain unscathed. Yeah. These analogies are very helpful, aren't they? Yeah. Afflictions are rooted in the ignorance that misapprehends reality. Ignorance grasps phenomena as inherently existent, whereas reasoning proves that in reality, phenomena are empty of inherent existence. Since ignorance does not rest on a valid foundation, okay, what ignorance believes is false. It cannot be validated by reasoning and logic. Because of that, ignorance can be overcome by the wisdom realizing emptiness. When ignorance is severed from its root, the afflictions that depend on it are also eradicated and can never return. Excellent qualities such as compassion cannot be undermined by wisdom because they rest on a valid foundation. So Dharmakirti affirms all flaws being susceptible to decrease and increase have counter forces, hence due to having inculcated the counter forces through habituating oneself to them, at some point the pollutants should be eliminated. So when we have um, familiarized our mind to such an extent with the wisdom realizing emptiness, then it becomes powerful enough to eradicate the ignorance that grasps at inherent existence. Okay? And that... When that is eliminated, then all the pollutants, all the defilements are gone. The nature of the mind is such that it is free of pollutants. And by nature, it, in other words, a mind that has realized emptiness, has real or has a real or undistorted object. As such, it cannot be counteracted by what is opposite to it. Because even if one were to attempt to do so, the mind is naturally inclined towards its nature. And its nature is not defiled. So even if we were to try and make it defiled, that couldn't happen. Okay. Questions, comments so far? Might be. Uh, I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> Excellent qualities such as compassion cannot be undermined by wisdom because they rest on a valid foundation. To clarify, the valid foundation is Buddha nature or the fact that they are empty of any inherent existence. I'm trying to understand what's between a valid foundation for them and an invalid foundation for the afflictions. Okay. Um, the basic nature of the mind is pure. It's the and the afflictions are not part of it. So because that basic nature of the mind is pure, yeah, positive qualities can exist in it without depending on grasping at inherent existence. 
but negative qualities like anger and jealousy and arrogance and so on, they, they depend on ignorance because it's this misperception of ignorance that is the root that brings forth all these other afflictions. But uh, compassion doesn't depend on ignorance grasping true existence. Hmm? Yeah, to exist, yeah. So you can apprehend a sentient being as an object of compassion and have compassion for them without necessarily grasping them as inherently existent. In the section about why we can eliminate afflictions because they're not associated with every moment of mind, isn't ignorance associated with every moment of mind? Um, not Ignorance is not manifest in every moment of mind. Yeah? They say uh, it, it comes up a lot because manifest ignorance actively grasps at inherent existence. But many times we're not actively grasping at inherent existence. But inherent existence is appearing to the mind. So at that moment, the ignorance isn't manifest, even though the appearance is there. And as soon as we, uh, you know, look at it and... You know, like you just notice there's nothing, nothing big deal about the the thermos. You're not grasping at its inherent existence. But when somebody takes away, then wait a minute, it's my thermos. At that moment, we're grasping this as inherently existent. Okay. It's hard for us to notice even when we're grasping in our inherent existence or even grasping self-sufficient substantial existence yeah. or even grasping permanence. You know, we're not always aware. The, I mean, the mind, these things arise in the mind and we just go with it. And then, you know, we grasp at things being permanent and then when they change, we're like shocked. How could that happen? Yeah. Well, that's because we were grasping at permanence and didn't even know we were doing that because we're so used to it. Yeah. But we weren't grasping at permanence every single moment. Okay. And so the step-by-step process is for us to really start to mitigate the self-grasping the appearance is going to be there for a long, long time. But to back <laughs> off on the clutching and the grasping as, of things as inherently existing, even if it's just conceptually contrived, but to back off so we're not clinging and causing the afflictions to yeah. just rumble. Yeah, because the clinging, the grasping at inherent existence is an afflictive obscuration. The appearance is a of inheritance yeah, is a cognitive obscuration. Yeah, but even before being able to back off grasping things as inherent existence, we have to learn the other antidotes that are easier for our mind to to use. Yeah, like thinking of impermanence, thinking of the disadvantages of something like that. 
Okay, so we'll close for the evening. I was thinking I'd do the whole first chapter's review in one lesson. Wrong again. <laughs>